to all who are joining us here from across the globe. Tonight's class is dedicated by our dear friends David and Ida Schattenstein in the sacred memory of the Kedoshim of Mumbai and Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and Rifki Holzberg, the Chabad ambassadors to Mumbai, India. Also dedicated in the loving memory of a young soul, Alta Shula Swerdlov, the daughter of Rabbi Yossi and Hindel Swerdlov. Tonight's class is also dedicated by Dudi Farkash from the Brooklyn Financial Group, a representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, and the merit of Hinda. Bas Rachel for a complete and speedy recovery and in the merit of Shmuley Farkash in honor of his 10th birthday on Hanukkah. It is a story of deep mystery, sadness, pain, drama and extraordinary emotion. It is difficult not to read and learn the story each year again and not be overtaken by deep sadness and emotion of how this story evolves until its climax in this week's portion, Vayigash, when Joseph who has once been despised, loathed, hated, almost killed, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery by his own brothers, has now become the second to the most powerful human being in the most powerful ancient civilization, Egypt. And finally he discloses his identity to his brothers. Ani Yosef. I am Yosef, I am your brother whom you have sold into Egypt. But tonight we want to explore the plot behind the story, the scheme behind the successive encounters between Joseph and his brothers, which leads up to the point of him exposing his identity to them. Many things happen. It's a long, dramatic, intense narrative filled with enigma and mystery. And we want to understand why. What is the nature of the story? What was Joseph trying to accomplish? What was he planning to achieve through these successive encounters? Let's recap the story in brief. There is a major hunger and Joseph's brothers come down from the land of Israel into Egypt in order to purchase grain for their family. Joseph sees them, he recognizes them, he estranges himself to them and speaks to them very harsh words. He accuses them of being spies. He imprisons them for three days. After three days, he lets them free, but he holds on to one brother, Shimon. 
Shimon remains in prison. And he tells them, you go home and bring down your youngest baby brother, Binyamin, Benjamin, in order to authenticate your version of the story that you're not spies, you're innocent men. They go back with the grain, back to the Holy Land, back to their father, Yaakov Jacob. He has the money which they paid for the grain put back in their sacks. They come home, they open their sacks, they realize that each of them has the money with, which was supposed to be in Egypt. They're frightened. They're scared. They know something strange is happening, but they don't know what is happening. Time passes, the food is finished, they need to go back to Egypt to purchase yet more grain for a hungry family. Jacob would not let them take Benjamin. They say we will not be able to purchase any food if we don't have Binyamin. The viceroy of Egypt has told us and made this stipulation. Yaakov is agitated. Don't take Binyamin. Binyamin's brother Yosef, his older brother, the two children of Rachel of Rachel, is dead. I am frightened to let Binyamin travel with you. Reuven intervenes to no avail. Yehuda, Judah intervenes. And he promises his father that he becomes the guarantor for Benjamin. I will make sure to bring him back. And finally, Jacob consents and the entire family, all of the children, including Benjamin, come down to Egypt. This time, they're greeted with more warmth and compassion. In fact, Joseph has a meal with them. They eat, they drink, he gives them gifts, he gives Benjamin even more gifts, five times the amount of the other brothers. They leave with the grain, they leave town, back to the land of Israel, back to Canaan. A sigh of relief, finally this time, it ended off peacefully. They of course do not know what awaits them. Because as they're leaving, Joseph sends his steward after them. He had his goblet, his majestic silver cup, hidden in the sack of Benjamin. So not only are they carrying the grain, and not only do they have the money, but they also have Joseph's cup. And when the steward of Joseph arrives and says, Why did you steal? Our master silver cup, they of course proclaim innocence. We never did it. And if you find that we are the thieves, one of us stole it, let him die, and we shall be your servants. The search happens. They begin searching the oldest, and they end up with the youngest. And of course in Benjamin's sack, there in the grain is hidden Joseph's silver majestic gvia goblet he then says he the thief shall be taken as a slave to Joseph you go back to your father in peace you're innocent he Benjamin is the thief he becomes a slave of Joseph he stole you're free we reach now that moment when they all return to Egypt, Vayigashelov Yehuda Judah approaches Joseph. And he presents to him a heartfelt plea for compassion and mercy. Primarily he evokes the state of Jacob, 
who has already lost one child, Yosef, a beloved child who died, Joseph. I cannot go back to my father, he says, if the second boy of Benjamin is gone. He will simply not be able to bear the shock and the grief. And my father will die. Let me, Joseph, remain here. I will become a slave to you. I will replace my baby brother and let him go back to his father. This is the moment when Joseph can't contain himself anymore. He dismisses the Egyptians. He begins to weep and he tells his brothers, Ani Yosef. I am Yosef. What is the theme of this narrative? Why was Joseph engaging in all of these performances and procedures what was he trying to accomplish what was the point why didn't he just expose his identity to his brothers initially and bring down his father Jacob and his brother Benjamin to him in Egypt and the family would be reconciled why go through this whole extremely interesting engaging mesmerizing journey and plot but why what was the objective what do you think? There are those who say, it's a tale of revenge. They hunted down Joseph. They persecuted him. They made his life miserable. He gave them a little bit of the taste of that type of life. As maybe simple as that explanation is, it's not, it doesn't work here. Besides the fact that in our tradition, Yosef is a tzaddik, he's a righteous person, he's a holy person, he's a great person, as we see the way he deals with his brothers and with this whole life experience, he's not a man of revenge. But there's something else. Nobody in Chumash cries as much as Yosef. Abraham cries when his wife dies. Jacob cries when he meets his wife, Rachel. He kisses Rachel and he weeps. There are instances of people crying throughout the Bible. But the one who weeps most, the one who cries most, is who? Yosef. The person who went through the most trauma, the most painful, excruciatingly painful experiences. You would expect he would become rough and harsh and tough. His heart would turn into stone. He does not stop weeping. He weeps when he meets his brothers the first time and he doesn't want them to see. He goes to a room and he weeps. He weeps a second time, the Torah tells us, when they bring down Benjamin and he sees Benjamin and he again goes into a private place and he weeps. He weeps again when he exposes his identity to them. He weeps again when he falls on their necks and cries. And then he weeps again when he falls on Benjamin's neck. He weeps again when he meets his father, Yaakov. And then when Jacob dies, he's weeping again. And then when his brothers come to him after their father's death, fearing that now he will finally take revenge from them. And while he is talking to them, he weeps again. Eight times! 
Genesis emphasizes the detail that Joseph wept. When you're taking revenge, you're not crying. We know about people who take revenge. We know the feeling that overtakes us while we're taking revenge. It's not a feeling where you want to cry. On the contrary, there was determination, aggression, maybe a little happiness. I am now taking revenge. He did this to me. I will do this to him. He tried to teach me a lesson, but I will teach him a lesson. That is the feeling that comes with revenge, with Nakama. Throughout this narrative, when you read it closely and carefully, it's clear that it was not revenge which was motivating Joseph. What then was it? The Ramban Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, the 13th century great sage, scholar, physician, leader from Spain, who wrote a brilliant commentary on Chumash, gives us another interpretation. The Ramban believes, and you have this in source number one of your curriculum and source sheet. Please open up source number one in your curriculum. There's a PDF right below the video. The Ramban believes that it was the dreams that were motivating Joseph. The Ramban says this, Joseph had two dreams. In both dreams he envisioned the reality of all of his brothers prostrating themselves to him. All of the brothers were binding sheaves, and their sheaves, all of them, bowed down to his. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars bow down to me, and Joseph had eleven brothers. The second paragraph in the Ramban, since Joseph sees that ten brothers came down, and they all bowed down to him when they came. He was the viceroy, he was the prime minister, but Benjamin wasn't there. So the dream was not realized, the dream was unfulfilled, because ten brothers bowed down, but not the eleventh. Therefore he devised a scheme in which they would have to bring down Benjamin as well, and he would also bow down to him, and thus the dream can be realized. And the Ramban continues, it's a long Ramban, the Ramban continues to explain this theme that if not, for this explanation there's absolutely no moral rationalization why Joseph would keep his father in such a state of mourning and grief and not send a message that he's alive. Because he needed the dream to be fulfilled. Yet this requires explanation. Number one, was it really justified on Yosef's part, knowing the depth of his father's love to him, to keep his father in such a state of mourning, just that his dream should be fulfilled? Number two, could have he not fulfilled the dream any other way? Could have he not somehow had his father and brother Benjamin come down to Egypt? And bow down to him so that the dream can be fulfilled? Doesn't it seem like that through this whole 
prolonged story, Joseph only delayed the fulfillment of the dream rather than hastened it. There is a third explanation we want to present this evening. And in order to understand it, let's preface the great question. And it's one of the big questions in the story. There's so many, but one of the great ones is, why didn't Joseph tell his father that he's alive? As the Ramban asks, as I just mentioned, when he was a slave in the house of Potiphar, knew maybe he didn't have the ability. When he was a prisoner, I understand he didn't have the ability. But afterwards, he was the prime minister of Egypt for years. There was seven years of plenty followed by, seven, by a few years of famine. When his brothers came, it was deep in the middle of the famine. Why didn't he send the message all these years to Yaakov, to his beloved father, that he's alive? Maybe he couldn't go himself, but he could send an emissary. He could find a messenger, a mailman to carry a letter. This is a question that is, of course, asked by many commentators, and everybody has a different answer for this. There is the Ramban's answer I just gave. He needed the dreams to be fulfilled first. So he needed this whole plot. It had to wait. He needed his brothers to come down and bow to him and so forth. Which has its, prob its challenges. There's another explanation that's brought that Joseph thought that Jacob was behind the plot. Jacob wanted to expel him from the Jewish people. But this has no basis in the narrative. Because Jacob told Joseph, go out and find out how your brothers are doing. That is why he sent them. For Joseph to think that Jacob was behind the plot of expelling him from the Abrahamic Jewish family seems very absurd. But there's another approach. And this is the approach we want to develop this evening. One of the most potent ideas in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tradition, is tshuva. Tshuva is translated as repentance and as return. It's the idea that every person is capable of making mistakes. Sometimes bad and tragic mistakes. But, despite the fact that we're capable of errors, that does not spell the end, despair for a human being, on the contrary. There is the process of healing, of recovery, of return, of mending our mistakes and transgressions and violations, and starting a new chapter in our life. That's the concept, the glorious concept of tshuva. But what is the mechanism of tshuva? How do you do tshuva? How do I know I have done tshuva, you have done tshuva, you have repented for a mistake? How do I know that I am in the state of recovery and not just in the cycle of mistakes, violations, and sins? The great codifier of Jewish law, Maimonides, the Rambam Rabbeinu, Moshe ben Maimon, 
the 12th century great scholar, leader, physician, sage, rabbi, codifier from Spain and then from Egypt gives us the formula. Open up your curriculum, please. Source number two. Rambam Hilchus Truva Perik Beis, the beginning of the second chapter of the Laws of Return, Zagdi Rambam. Eizahi Truva Gemura. What is complete Truva? When can we consider the person to have repented in a complete fashion? Zeshabali Yadai Davar Sha'avar Boy, Ve'efshir Biyadai Lasai Sai Upirej, Ve'loi Asa Mipnei Hatshuva, Loi Miyiri, Ve'loi Mekishlin Kayach. Somebody who is given the opportunity to repeat his mistake. The same transgression that he once committed, he could now commit once again. And yet, he abstains. Why? Because he's a changed person. Not because he's scared. Not because he has not the vigor, the strength. All the circumstances are conducive for him to repeat the crime again. And yet, he refrains. Why? Because something internally changed in him or her. And then the Rambam continues, Halacha Beis, the second section, the second paragraph in the second chapter of the Laws of Tshuva. Umahi HaTshuva, what is Tshuva? First he tells us what is complete Tshuva, Tshuva Gemura. But what is Tshuva essentially? What are the essential ingredients of Tshuva? The sinner must abandon his sin, remove it from his mind, and resolve in his heart that he will never repeat it again. He will never do it again. He must also regret and have remorse for the past. And the knower of all secrets should testify on him that he will never repeat this sin. But he must confess with his lips and verbally articulate these concepts which he experienced and decided in his heart. The Rambam here gives us two components to define what is mainstream tshuva. Number one, you have to regret the past. Number two, you have to resolve never to repeat what you have done in the past. It's not enough just to say, I feel bad, I'm sorry, I don't like what I did, I made a mistake, I sinned, it was my fault. No, you have to also take accountability and responsibility for the future. Make a decision that I will never do this again. That's the second component of tshuva. So it's about the past and about the future. And then there is tshuva gemura, complete tshuva is that you actually are given the same circumstances in your life and you prove in a real way that you will not do it again, because you can do it, and you still don't. Now, it's not enough just to experience it emotionally. The Rambam tells us truth is also the need to articulate it verbally.
there is a great discussion in halachic works and works of Jewish law. What is the source for this lovely formulation of Maimonides? Where did he get this formulation? What is truva? Regretting the past, resolving for the future, to the extent, the Rambam says, that God has to be able to testify that you will never do it again. God, who knows the future, can testify that this person will not engage in this again. That is truva. And what is complete truva? When you actually could do it and you don't, you abstain from it. So the Rambam brings various verses which he interprets and explains to be sources for these explanations. But the verses can also be explained in other ways. The Rambam formulates these elements of truva and commentators, sometimes commentators struggle to know what is the source for every detail that the Rambam articulates here concerning truva. It is perhaps possible to suggest that maybe one of the sources, or at least one of the sources strengthening the formulation of the Rambam of what Shuvah is, is not from a verse which describes a law or a mitzvah, but it's from a story. It's from a narrative. It may not be the exclusive source, but may be an additional assisting narrative to define what Shuvah is. Because the moment we see these three components in the Rambam about what Shuvah is, we can clearly understand what was in Joseph's mind when he put through his brothers, through the very intense and painful experiences which he had them endure during this long narrative? Something very painful happened in the life of the founding fathers of the Jewish people. A brother, Yosef, is thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. And his father is told that he was killed. He's dead. Joseph not only survived, he thrived. From a prisoner, he rose to become the prime minister of the superpower of the world at the time, Egypt. As he would tell his brothers again and again in Vayigash. He doesn't hate them. He will not take revenge from them. He forgives them. He doesn't want them to feel horribly guilty. He is not angry. Fascinating. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's not burning with ire. verse says that when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, it says, There was nobody there. No man was there. And there's a commentary I once saw in a Hasidic source. It doesn't only mean physically there was no man there. There was nothing human about what occurred. There was not an element of ordinary humanness in that room with Joseph at the time. 
Because to conceive that a person should be so forgiving and should be so clear and should not retain the bitterness and the resentment and the anger is something unique, something extraordinary. And why not? Joseph says, you didn't do it. You did it, but you were messengers of God. God wanted me here. And that's how he sees it throughout. He was healed. But he had a question. Did his brother survive? He survived, but did his brother survive? Not physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Did they come to realize what they have done to themselves, to their brother, to their father? to their family, to generations of Jews, did they realize? Are they ready to take accountability? Are they ready to heal? Can the family be reconciled and truly healed? In one word, have his brothers done tshuva? Now, we can understand the story. All of the experiments that happen in this narrative are about the three-step program the Rambam articulates for Tshuva. Number one, they come down to Egypt. He speaks harshly to them after they bow down to him. He accuses them of being spies. One of the worst crimes in the ancient world and in the modern world. The punishment for this type of treason is often the death penalty. They're imprisoned for three days knowing that the prime minister of the country accuses these ten boys, these ten young men, as being spies. Miraglim. Against Egypt. This is a crime of gigantic proportions. It's no small crime. Joseph accuses them of a crime that they did not commit. They were not spies. We know they came to get food. Hoping that this will remind them of a crime that they did commit. They will realize that they did once commit a crime. And they will regret it. And hence the first stage of tshuva will occur. Regret, remorse of the past. Indeed what happens? When they go through this process of being accused as spies, sitting in prison for three days, then being taken out and their brother Shimon is left in prison, what happens? Source number three in your curriculums. Parshas Miketz, Vayoimru Ishelochiv, they turn to their brothers and say, Avala Shemim Anachnu Alachinu Asherinu Tzaris Nafshay, Bishchananay Eleinu Veloishamonu Alkein Baaleinu Atzarazois. We are guilty. We are guilty. It's not that this prime minister is a meshugana. <laughs> He's an anti-Semite. You know how Jews are. He's an anti-Semite. We're guilty. We had a brother. We saw the distress on his soul when he begged us. But we did not listen to him. This is the first time we learned that Joseph was begging them. To let him go. Because in the original story when they sell him. We don't hear about this. Suddenly here we know a detail that we never knew before. 
And we did not listen to him. Al-Kain, therefore, we're experiencing this sorrow, this distress, this difficult situation. And who does Joseph leave in prison? Shimon. That's also very significant. Because when you read the biblical narrative, it's clear that Shimon is the second of the oldest. Reuven he should have put in prison. But Joseph knew Reuven's relationship to him. And Joseph may have known that Reuven was the one who initially told his brothers, don't kill him, throw him into a pit. And Joseph knows that Reuven wasn't there when they took him out of the pit and they sold him, or they allowed him to be sold. sold. Two, two interpretations among the biblical commentators, if they sold him directly, or they allowed him to be sold. Reuven wasn't there. He comes back later in Vayeshev. We know the narrative. So Reuven doesn't sit in prison. It's Shimon who's put into prison. Tradition also tells us that Shimon was this brother who actually physically cast them into the pit. Joseph hears the remorse, the regret. And Reuven responds to them and he says, I told you, don't sin against the child. And now his blood is being exacted from you. Step number one has occurred in front of Joseph's eyes. The brothers realized that a great crime, a great mistake, a horrible tragedy has occurred, has been committed by them. Phase number two in Shuvah. This will not happen in front of Joseph's eyes, but he will be very well aware whether it happens or it doesn't happen. Joseph develops a strategy which will determine to him if the brothers have made a commitment for the future. Not just remorse for the past, but resolve for their future actions. When he demands of them to bring Benjamin back to Egypt, and if not, they should not come back to him asking for more food. He knows very well, knowing who his father is, knowing his feelings of his father, knowing his own relationship to his father, and how his father loved him and his younger brother Benjamin, the children of Rachel of Rachel. He knows that Yaakov will never let Benjamin leave his domain if those brothers don't commit themselves to behave in the future much differently than they behaved when Joseph was sent to them. He knew that Jacob will never let this happen if they will not commit themselves heart and soul to protect Benjamin and make sure that he is not lost to the wolves as Joseph was once lost the way Jacob understood and knew the story. And indeed that is what happens. Jacob says, you're not, you're not taking Benjamin. I've lost Joseph. I've lost Shimon. He's in prison in Egypt. I can't lose my third. I can't lose Benjamin. Reuven intervenes. It doesn't help. But then Yehuda, 
Judah stands up to his father Yaakov and he says, I will be the guarantor for Binyamin. You will seek him from my hands. I commit myself to bring him back. And if not, I will have sinned before you all the days of my life. And Yaakov agrees. And Benjamin comes down to Egypt. Joseph sees Binyamin. And this is where he cries for the second time. The second phase of tshuva has just been completed. It's clear that they did not only regret the past, but they have committed themselves to do everything differently in the future. And now, there's the third phase, tshuva gemura, the complete tshuva. And here is where Joseph devises a masterstroke. He recreates to the best of his ability all of the circumstances that were in place decades earlier when he was 17 years old. His brothers were jealous of him. His brothers did not like him. His brothers disliked the special multicolored tunic that Jacob gave him as a gift. His brothers despised his dreams. And they did what they did. Now this class is not discussing how and why the brothers can hate Joseph so much and do what they did to him. That is a separate discussion and it requires not one class but many classes. It's not our theme this evening. But what happened? And Joseph now sets up a very similar scenario. When the brothers with Benjamin are leaving... He has his goblet, his majestic silver cup hidden in Benjamin's sack. And he sends his steward to fetch the thief, quote unquote, and discover who stole his gviha kesef, his silver cup. Of course, it's discovered in the sack of Benjamin. And now the offer is made to all of the brothers. Let him remain a slave here. Let him remain an Eved, a servant to Joseph. And you go up in peace to your father. Here the brothers will have the same opportunity like they had so many years ago. Benjamin will be left as a slave in Egypt. Just as Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt. And they will go back to reunite themselves with their father. Will they let this happen once again as they once did it with Yosef? Or this time it will be different. The circumstances are frighteningly similar. Who is this son? It's Benjamin. it's Benjamin. Joseph's complete brother, the only complete brother. Both of them are children of Rachel. These are the boys of Leah or Billah or Zilpah. But Joseph and Benjamin are both the children of Rachel. There was friction between the sets of kids, between the children of Leah and Rachel, between Leah and Rachel. Jacob loved Joseph, the child of Rachel, of Rachel. 
they had a difficult time with that love that he had to Joseph. Here is Benjamin, once again, a child of Rachel. Joseph's complete brother. They can go back to their father and say, listen, father, he's a thief. The kid stole the prime minister's silver goblet. What do you want from us? Of course we were planning to bring him back. But what are we supposed to do when this kid, Hatnishkin Seichel, he takes the cup of the prime minister, of the second to the most powerful person in the most ancient of civilizations. What are we supposed to do? Tell us. You want it all to shoot, to shoot we should all die? We offered. What were they supposed to do? They could tell Jacob, he's a gunner, he's a thief, he stole the cup. There's nothing to do. This was now the question on the balance. What will happen? Will they surrender Benjamin to a life of slavery in Egypt and let themselves go up to their father with grain, with money, because he put back all the money in their sacks, or will they do something differently? But wait! You can't compare their envy to Joseph towards their envy to Benjamin. Joseph they envied because of a multicolored coat that Jacob gave him. Ah, but something happened. During the meal, before they left Egypt, what does the Torah say in Mekates? Jacob gave all the brothers gifts, and Benjamin he gave five times the amount. Why? To be able to create some type of envy once again. Here, Benjamin is the youngest kid. The youngest should not be getting five times the amount. He's the baby. He's the mazinic. And yet, he gets five times the amount of the other brothers. To the best of his ability, jo Joseph set up all of the circumstances that the natural envy that they might have had towards Benjamin should be accelerated, should be experienced in their hearts and in their minds at that moment. And now the question is, how will they react this time? How will they deal with the potential and the reality of Benjamin being summoned as a slave? Not because of them. They're not even guilty. He stole a cup. They don't know that it was a plot of Joseph. And how will they respond to this moment? And what happens? What happens? Vayigash, I love Yehuda, Yehuda. The one who promised Jacob that he will bring Benjamin back goes over to Joseph. And he begins speaking to him. And he describes to him the relationship between Benjamin and Yaakov. His soul is intertwined, intertwined and interconnected with his soul. And Yehuda tells Yosef, the Prime Minister of Egypt, that Jacob will never be able to survive the ordeal of the brothers coming home without Benjamin. In Jacob's words, he says, when I come back, the lad is not with us, their souls are intertwined. Our father will die. And Yehuda, Judah tells Joseph, Ki your servant became the guarantor for this lad. 
I'm the one who told my father that if I will not bring him back to you, I will sin to my father all the days of my life. Therefore, let me become the slave instead of him and let him go back with his brothers. How can I go up to my father without Benjamin with me? How will I be able to look at my father in his face when the child is not with me? Now let's understand what Joseph is hearing. This is the same Yehuda who years earlier when Joseph was in a pit, what did Yehuda say? Ma betza. What profit is there in us letting him die in a pit and covering his blood? Let's sell him. What money is there? What benefit? What profit is there in just letting Joseph die? Let's sell our brother. Same situation. Decades later, his other brother, Binyamin. And what's the same person's response? The same person's response. When he could have done it very differently, it was. His soul is connected to my father's soul. I am the guarantor. How can I go back to my father without a child? I'm going to sit instead of the land. The third dimension of tshuva just happened. The circumstances were repeated. And the same people reacted completely differently. Now, healing is before us. So what's the next scene? The next scene right after this. Source number five in your curriculum. Please open up source number five. Yosef Yosef can't contain himself. And he says, let everybody go. Take everybody out. Not one person was there when Joseph exposed himself to his brothers and he began crying. Yosef began weeping. Joseph tells his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father still living? And they can't respond. They are dumbfounded. They are awestruck. They're terrified. They can't speak. The truth is, if you look in the Medrash, this idea is encapsulated so briefly in the words of the Medrash in source number 6. All the words All the words of Judah to Joseph until Joseph can't contain himself constituted appeasement to Joseph, to his brothers, and to Benjamin. Piously Yosef. It was an appeasement for Joseph. See how Yehuda is sacrificing his soul for whom? For the children of Rachel. For Rachel. 
He's ready to become a lifelong slave in Egypt so that Binyamin could go back to Jacob. Pius Le'echov, it was an appeasement for his brothers. See how he's ready to sacrifice himself for a brother. Pius Le'Binyamin, and it was very healing for Binyamin. It was a message to Benjamin, I sacrifice, I'm sacrificing myself for you. I would sacrifice myself the same way for your brother, for Joseph, if I had the opportunity. When Yosef heard this, when he realized the true transformation and metamorphosis that happened, now he couldn't contain himself anymore. This is the moment the narrative must reach closure. Joseph tells them, Ani Yosef, it's over, I'm Yosef. I'm here, I'm not upset at you. God has planned it so. God wanted me here. I saved the fertile crescent from hunger. I will save your family from hunger because I am here, because I was sold to Egypt. And now bring down Yaakov here. And Yaakov, of course, comes with his family. Joseph has indeed seen that Shuva happened. The three-step program in Rambam Hilchus Shuva was not studied. It was acted out as a rehearsal for the genesis of the Jews as a people in the story of Joseph and his brothers beginning in Vayeshev, continuing in Meketz, and concluding in Vayigash, and then Vayechi. The Alshech, Rab Moshe Alshech, in Teres Moshe's commentary, the 16th century sage and great rabbi in Tzephas and Safad in the Holy Land, makes another very interesting point. He says that specifically, the sin of the brothers consisted of five elements, five components. Number one, they spoke negatively to him. They didn't like him, and they spoke. It says, They couldn't speak to him in peace. There were words of conflict and, uh, and negativity and animosity between the, from the brothers towards Joseph, especially when they heard his dreams. The second thing is, they tried to kill him. They planned to kill him. When he was coming to them in Shechem, they plotted to kill him. The third crime was, they didn't kill him, but they plotted to kill him. That's also a sin. The third crime was, they threw him into a pit. The fourth crime was, they sold him. And the fifth crime, the al says, was they put their father through a hellish experience of pain and torment. When they soaked his tunic in the blood of a goat, and they asked their father, Hakir not recognize Aksoinis bin Is this the coat of your brother of your son? And Joseph says, Yes, Torah Taraf Yosef, he was devoured by an animal. That pain that they gave their fathers was a tremendous crime. And the Al Sheikh says that Joseph was committed to help his brothers experienced tshuva and he says that specifically five things happened to help them appreciate and to sensitize them to what they did so that they can be forgiven for their sins 
He says the first thing he did was he spoke to them harshly when they come to Egypt, just as they once spoke to him harshly. So they can experience the feeling. The second thing is he suspects them as spies and he imprisons them. And the penalty for espionage is death. So they are feeling that they are going to be killed. They are going to be executed. And this is part of truth. It's part of the first process of remorse and regret. There's a story about a king who was running away from an enemy. And who was pursuing him. And he sees the house of, of some man. And the man says, come in, come in, I'll hide you. And he hides the king under the bed. And the enemy comes into the home and checks out the house to look for the king. And the man says, no, I hate him as much as you do. And he is not here, I promise you. And they search and search. And Amazel, they don't find the king. And they let him go. And finally, when the conflict is over and the king is saved and is restored back to his throne, he summons this man and he says, I want to reward you. How can I reward you? He says, I was happy to do what I did. I just want to know one thing, your majesty. Tell me how you felt when you were lying there under the bed and your enemies were hunting you down in the house and searching in that very room where you were hiding. How did you feel? And suddenly a pleasant demeanor changed into angry, an angry appearance, and the king said, that's chutzpah, that's treason. How do you, a simple subject, have the audacity to ask me how I felt in those terrible moments? That is horrible. You deserve to die for this chutzpah to speak to the king this way. And he's immediately taken and imprisoned and sentenced to die in the gallows. And he's dressed in the garments of the man who is going to be executed and is taken to the gallows and the king is sitting right there. And the man is brought up, elevated, soon to be hung. And he looks at the king and the king looks at him and then the king approaches him and says, you're free. The man is astounded, is astonished. What's happening? He says, the king tells him, you asked me a question, so I answered you the question. There was no way you would understand what I was going through under the bed at those moments. Any speech or lecture in the world would not explain it to you. I needed you to experience it, to understand what I went through. And thus I did what I did. I apologize to you. But you asked me to explain it to you, so I did. And he rewards him and he sends him home with great glory and honor and respect and, and gratitude. To be able to have remorse, to be able to regret something, you have to be able to experience it on some level. So the Alshich says he had his brothers feel that they're going to get the death penalty because this is what they wanted to do to Joseph. So they can experience what it feels like and truly do truth of what they did to their brother. So he accuses them as spies. The third thing is they threw him into a prison. So he has them arrested for three days. So they can feel what it is like to be in a pit. The, the prisons in, in Egypt were in a burr, in a pit, as it says in Vayeshev, when Joseph was in prison. And then the brothers, 
are let out, but Shimon stays there because Shimon is the one who actually threw him into the pit. The next thing is they sold him. They made money off their brother. Criminal money off their own brother. So Joseph accuses them of being thieves. Or they accuse themselves of being thieves. He puts the money back into their sacks. They see it. They say, Oy vey, we're going to be accused of being thieves. They're innocent. They're not criminals. They didn't do anything. They didn't steal the money. We know that. They didn't steal the money. Joseph had the money put into their packs. But by accusing them of something they did not do, they might remember something they did do. They did once steal money. They sold their brother illegally for money. And for the aggravation they gave to his father with the bloody tunic, he aggravated them with his silver goblet. Not with a multicolorful tunic, but with a silver goblet. To the best of his ability, he recreated circumstances that will allow them to really regret what they did. This is an extra detail explaining the other small details in the story which we did not address earlier. But basically, tshuva was experienced in this narrative. So when the brothers came down to Joseph, he could have immediately said, I'm Joseph and sent a message to Yaakov, I'm here and come back. Come down to Egypt and let us be reunited. But Joseph understood that this family is broken. This family has some very serious challenges. This is what happened in the family. I was sold as a slave. Just covering it up, just telling Yaakov, I'm alive, I'm here, let's come back. The family reunited. In the presence of Jacob, they may be quiet, everybody may remain silent, but the infection is not gone. The family is a broken family. Healing is needed, recovery is needed, a transformation is needed, a new discovery is needed. Joseph's narrative and strategy allows that to happen. It brings out tshuva. It brings out healing in a family until the last stage when Yehuda is ready to sacrifice himself so that Benjamin doesn't remain a slave. And now a new family can be reunited. A healed family. A wholesome family. This is now when the brothers could come together with Yaakov and truly experience reconciliation which will continue until Jacob's death and after Jacob's death. Why now? Now it was essential to happen because this is the point when the Jews are going to become a new nation. They are going to endure exile and then be liberated. And they're going to become a nation under God with a covenant towards God. And this would become a tremendous foundation in Judaism. The foundation of Tshuva. Before they could become a nation... They experience this moment of tshuva. Tshuva means we fail, we make mistakes, we transgress willingly or unwillingly. Sometimes we're guilty, sometimes we're not guilty. But it's inherent to the human condition that we make mistakes. And tshuva means that we have the ability to acknowledge to be accountable, to regret, to resolve for the future, and not to repeat it.
this would be instrumental, intrinsic, and necessary to the whole future of the Jewish people. Now the family could come into Egypt. Now the family could be reconciled. Now the family could become a nation, a blessed nation. If they're fighting, if there's a real disunity in its essence, there's no hope for this nation. Now there is hope for this nation. And there's also the concept of tshuva to guide this nation. Because in life, you need not be perfect. You need to be accountable. Good night.